Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So, take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hello and welcome to this Our Changing World podcast from RNZ National, presented by Alison Balance and Veronica Maduna. Now on Our Changing World, ancient polar forests. A team of New Zealand and Australian fossil hunters recently spent several weeks on a National Geographic expedition, scouring the Clarence Valley near Kaikoura and the Chatham Islands for remnants of prehistoric forests from the time when dinosaurs ruled the land. They returned with big fossil-bearing boulders that tell stories of lush forests and warm climates almost 100 million years ago. Veronica catches up with GNS science paleontologist Liz Kennedy and expedition leader Chris Mays from Monash University, who explains why New Zealand is such a good place to look for the remains of polar forests. During that time, before the, the rifting, the breaking apart of Gondwana, the New Zealand continent, which includes the Chatham Islands and New Caledonia and Lord Howe Rise and all these little underwater parts as well, that was all still uh, smack bang against Antarctica and smooshed in between Antarctica and Australia in this much, much larger continent called uh, Gondwana. Australia and New Zealand have been moving north ever since, and whereas Antarctica has been sort of left behind at the South Pole. And so what we really want to uh, look at the New Zealand and Australian fossils for is to give us an idea of what the South Pole looked like. These guys have been moving north, and Antarctica uh, has stayed where it is. But as you know, Antarctica is covered by lots and lots of ice. So it's a lot easier to see polar forests and polar uh, fossils by looking at New Zealand and Australia. So was that lump of land back then, 90, 200 million years ago, already sitting in the polar position? Yeah, where Antarctica is yeah. now? Yeah, so Antarctica pretty much stayed where it was, and you've got these other sort of land masses stuck on the side of it at the time. And so these sort of offer a nice little window into that, that really high latitude or polar environments. Uh, much easier than to dig through a couple of kilometres of ice in Antarctica to find the fossils. So that's the main reason why these guys offer that nice little window that we can't access otherwise. So this rock that you've split up, fossil collection, a rich fossil collection in there, mm -hmm. that came from the Clarence River Valley. That's right. Is this one here. So it's, tell me what we're looking at here. So we've got a whole mixed bag of uh, different uh, fossil types all scattered onto this one surface here. You can imagine it's kind of like a, what you might see on a forest floor with a whole bunch of scattered uh, plant debris all from the, from the trees around, uh, the ferns, the understory components, all these little guys all being thrown together into this uh, one surface. So you've got little conifer shoots, you've got little flowering plant leaves. You might have a fern or two so kicking that one, around. That one looks like a little beech leaf. Would that be right? This little guy here? Yeah. It might, it might have been. It's, it, it, because they've been sort of shredded during deposition, it's hard to sort of see exactly what they might have looked like sometimes. Uh, you kind of have to piece them together from multiple little specimens and get an idea of what they look like from sort of like a Frankenstein's monster of, of fossils. You need to patch it together from multiple different specimens. Sometimes, if you're lucky, um, you can have the carbon film preserved and have the cuticle of the original leaf preserved and you get a pattern of cells and you can actually identify it to um, a family group of um, plant fossils. In this case, 
we don't know if there's cuticle preserved. Um, it doesn't look too likely because they're not very thick carbon films, but mm. we might get lucky. Mm. So at this stage, you've only looked at this visually. You haven't been able to do any analysis. That's right. This has come straight in from the field, and it's been sitting here waiting to be shipped to Melbourne for study. Can you talk me through what you see? Because mm. I see obviously lots of plant material, but you, between the two of you, you can probably see a bit more specific things. Yeah, sure. So it looks like there's at least I don't know, four or five different species of, of conifers. So like things like the cowrie sort of are represented here. Yeah. So you've got large flat leaves with the parallel veins. And then you've got these little compact uh, conifer shoots like these, things like this. Look from like, more like cypress or maybe like a protocarp. So you've got a, a mixed bag of, of these different uh, conifers all thrown together. Little slices of flowering plants as well. Uh, so they tend to be a bit more uh, broader leaves with the little net veins. And so together you can get a bit of an, an idea of what was living at that time in that place by patching it together, especially with these larger surfaces like this, you can get a pretty good idea about the relative proportions of the plants as well. Not just what sort of plants were there, but also what sort of abundances they came in. So in this case, I, I almost certainly say there would be a conifer forest here. Lots and lots of conifer shoots, um, very few angiosperms uh, or ferns. Uh, apart from that, it's going to be something looking a bit like, like you might see in the boreal forests of the Northern Hemisphere, like Canada, um, Northern Europe, where you have lots and lots of uh, conifers basically represented and just a, a minor component of uh, other things around the bases. Of the trees. Is there anything in this part of the world that would today look similar? Something like these tiny little um, scale-leafed um, protocups uh, could be similar to uh, Rimu, for example. And then you have ones that have bigger needle-like leaves. They might be something more similar to a um, matai. And you, I mean, in slightly younger rocks, you get things that look like totara. And over here, and mm. there's a broader stem with these small, broad leaves sort of stumpy leaves, and that's likely to be a Arakirian stem, which in today our Arakirian is represented by the cowrie. There's a couple of other sort of weird characters that are hidden amongst these plants. We've pointed out some of the more common things that people might recognise, things that are still living today, or at least the relatives of. Um, but then there are things that we find in here that have no representation at all in New Zealand or Australia, like the ginkgos. We have quite a few ginkgo leaves, which we only have one species of today, based in China. But in Gondwana times, we had ginkgos scattered all the way across the southern hemisphere, and they were a very pretty important component of the forest at the time. But then somewhere between now and 90 million years ago, they petered off completely. There's a couple throughout um, southern Australia that lasted until about 50 million years ago. Apart from that, they just uh, vanished. So they were completely squished out of their ecological niche by some other things, probably by the flowering plants that came in and, and started dominating their, their ecological position. Other things like the, there's things called seed ferns, which are uh, still present in these rocks. So seed ferns are a completely extinct group. Uh, we don't have any representation of those guys at all uh, in the modern world. And you still see some of those guys here in the Clarence Valley and on the Chathams as well. And so they were sort of in their last stages of, of existence before they were finally squished out, probably by the same group. So those angiosperms, those flowering plants, probably squeezed them out of their, of their ecological so you, niches. So you think the selective pressure there might have been the evolution of flowering plants rather than the changes in climate? Mm, that's a good question. There's a sort of a, a case for, for both happening at the same time. And there's a pretty good chance that they were both playing a part. There's also a good case for uh, the angiosperms, the flowering plants, basically 
starting to spread around the world because of the climatic shift. And so the, the antisperms were, were squeezing their way into different uh, parts of the world where they hadn't been before because the climate became much more amenable to them. Apart from that, there was quite a few things going on at the time that was sort of pushing these old guard out of the way and making way for the, for the flowering plants to come in. Tell me a bit about the Chathams. From the Cairns River Valley, you went on to the Chathams to do some more yep. fossil That's right. collecting and hunting. What did you find there? The rocks there are a little bit younger, but there's very similar forest makeup there. As most people in New Zealand know, the Chatham Islands are about 800 k's east of Christchurch. But at the time, there was essentially a broad, open land all the way from New Zealand to the Chathams. And so you had this extensive forest running all the way across Zealandia, which is that, that subcontinent of New Zealand, Chathams, uh, New Caledonia. So you have this very similar floral story going all the way across and into Australia and Antarctica. So you have a very similar sort of forest going on, but also this is important to see the slight change in time. The, the Clarence Valley stuff is a little bit older, is where you have those ginkgos and um, seed ferns still around. By the time you get to the Chatham Island stuff, most of that stuff has been lost. So you've ended up with just very modern sort of flora. And that's a transition. That's a really important transition in the evolutionary history of plants, is that change from the old, what are now extinct plants, into the modern flora where you have the, the domination of the um, angiosperms, flowering plants. It's a pretty important perspective to see both the older and then compare it to the newer stuff. But the actual rocks themselves are very similar and the forests are pretty similar in terms of their makeup. When it comes to analysing what you're finding, is it possible to identify down to the species in some cases? Yeah, absolutely. Yep, There are certain parts of the plants that are really distinctive. So if you find the pollen cones, a little the male fertile material, then essentially what you'll find is a little pollen still attached, which is really cool. So you can scrape some of that off, look at it under a very high-powered microscope. You can see the unbelievable detail on these pollen grains down to a thousandth of a millimetre. And you can see that, that, okay, that definitely belongs to this group. Or, like Liz was saying, uh, you can actually see the, the cellular details of the leaves themselves. So that can be a very important distinctive feature as well. Is there any chemical analysis you can do on those samples? Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, we're hoping to do some, uh, some isotopic analyses of some of the plants to give us an idea if there's any differences between them. And that's going to give us a good handle on not the plant story, but also the climate story, because the carbon and oxygen isotopes in these plants will actually change depending on what the climate is doing. There's a whole geochemical story behind that. In essence, what you see is the plants take in certain isotopes during warmer times and less of it during cooler times, and that was actually reflected in the plant material. So we're going to be processing the plants throughout the section, throughout the, the rocks, and seeing if it changes through time. And hopefully we'll see a pretty important climatic signal from that approach. We'll see. <laughs> is there any way of checking the number of stomata on those leaves? Just as another way of mm. figuring out what they were doing and how they were cool. doing yeah, their photosynthesis? There's a couple of really important characters in here that are quite useful. The ginkgo, for example, has pretty thick cuticles, outer waxy surfaces of their leaves. And so those guys tend to be easily prepared and see those um, stomatal details and those little cellular details on the leaves. That in itself is a pretty important angle for working out the carbon dioxide story. The more stomata on the leaves, so the more little breathing apparatus, little breathing holes on the leaves, the less CO2, less carbon dioxide there is in the atmosphere at the time. The so hang, on, hang on, bear with me on that. They needed more of them because there was less CO2 in the air, so they needed more to get more into exactly. the system. Exactly, so they need okay. to try and take in as much carbon dioxide as possible, so they need to have more holes in their leaves. If there's lots of CO2, then they don't need as many. 
the reason why they try to minimise the number of little holes is because they also lose water through the um, through little stomata. If you can get by with fewer little stomata on your leaves, then you might as well. And so, so they're really walking a tightrope there between trying to avoid exactly. water loss but getting enough CO2 into their Precisely. system so they can make. It's one of those really classic homeostatic uh, conditions where you don't want to have you don't want to go too far one way, otherwise you'll end up uh, losing water. If you don't have enough, then you'll end up uh, not getting enough carbon dioxide. So you really get that, like I said, a tightrope balance there. And so what you find in the uh, the leaves from this time period, very, very high CO2. And that's pretty much what you'd expect considering you're looking at polar forests. You're looking at a, a time and a place which we don't have an analogue of today. We have uh, 2,000 metres of ice where you have forests back in the day. And the CO2 today is really low in, in relative terms. In relative terms, yes. yes. <laughs> we're doing a pretty good job of changing that. But between these time periods when we're looking at in the rock record, uh, we're looking at around carbon dioxide levels of about four or five times today. But we can see the climate reflected in that carbon dioxide abundance. You can see that we've got polar forests. And these are the sorts of things you may find if you crank out a lot of CO2 in the future. You may find that the ice melts and you end up making the... Uh, polar conditions nice and lush with forests again in the long term. These forests would have faced another challenge if they were in the polar position where Antarctica is now. Light mm. would have been a very limiting factor at times. That's true. It's a really contentious sort of issue at the moment. How could these plants have survived and thrived really well at the high latitudes when they didn't have light for a good three or four months of a year? It turns out that the amount of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere combined with the amount of light they did get during the summer was enough to offset that. And so a lot of these plants, you can see the, the tree rings in cross-section. You can see that they've got very strong growth during the summer months and then they basically shut off during winter. And that's just a case of, of making the most of the light they do have. And apparently that was enough with the carbon dioxide being so high as well. So they're basically sucking in a lot of carbon and getting enough light during those summer months that it seems to have offset the whole issue of losing three or four months of light a year. So have you been able to find fossils that actually give you like a tree stem with tree rings Ooh. still in it? Oh, yes. We've got some uh, pretty, pretty spectacular fossil woods preserved from the Chatham Islands. Just hints of it last time. This time we've found the mother load, big trees and essentially whole surfaces of a forest floor uh, preserved. And you can see the spacing of the trees. We're talking very densely packed uh, forest floor here. And you might have a dozen or so of trees over a couple of maybe five or six square metres. So we're seeing a very densely packed forest. And within the, the, the wood themselves, you can see nicely preserved tree rings. And that gives us a really good idea about the growth habit of the forest. And it turns out they were growing really fast and then they were stopping over winter, uh, which is what you'd expect, that strong seasonal signal every year. That was one of the, the big finds of, of this year's uh, expedition was these in situ tree stumps and the, the forest floors being represented there. So you actually see a big section of the cliff and you can see all these trees that are still buried in sediment. You can imagine like a, a forest in Southland or something, uh, and you've just got the sliced sections of, of these trees, and you've got them still buried where they were living. And so you can get a really good idea about how big they were, where they were in relative places to each other, and also from how wide the trunks are, you can get an idea of how tall they were as well. You've got a whole really important sort of forest ecology uh, preserved in the rock record now. Chris, you touched on it before that... It's hard to get a window on this world and on these polar forests because simply there isn't that many samples mm. to be found. How important 
are those sites that you've just visited, the Clarens and the Chathams? Well, the Clarence flora is, is really unique in New Zealand. It's the only leaf flora we have of this age that we, that we know of at the moment, a good leaf flora. And it's the only one that actually has um, quite large broadleaf angiosperms in it. So that's the flowering plants, which we can you know, compare um, the types and the percentages um, with the conifers as well. So it's, it's really unique in that context. The Clarence and the Chatham Islands localities combined, they pretty much have have a pretty important global story to talk about. And we're not just talking about the, the history of the Chatham Islands or the history of Clarence Valley. We're talking about the history of New Zealand, but New Zealand in the context of Gondwana. And also, now that we're seeing the climatic story, we're seeing what the world might look like in the future. We're seeing what sort of conditions the world might be under if you crank up the CO2 to five or six times the modern amount. So we're actually seeing not just not just the history of, of the islands, we're also seeing the history of, of the world and what the, the sort of climatic extremes can be. These guys represent a really nice window into a world that we don't have an analogue for. Part of the thing that gets me up in the morning is, is thinking about worlds from our past which are completely unlike what we see today. And this is really one of the best ways to, to do it, is to see extreme conditions represented in the fossil record because they may give us an idea about what's going on in the future. I have to ask you this, though. We talked about flora, mm -hmm. but obviously when you're looking that far back, you might want to look at fauna as well. Did you find any fossils Ooh. of um, animals? We have. We have found a few. What was going on in the forest? What was living in the forest apart from the, from the plants? Was it a quiet forest or were there you know, snarling dinosaurs around? Dinosaurs, not so much yet, but it's still early days. Uh, we have found little critters, uh, little insects and other arthropods actually preserved in the, in the rocks. And we see lots and lots of traces of them on the leaves. So we see something's been munching on these leaves as well. But the animal record is pretty low abundance so far. We haven't actually managed to find too much in the animal world yet and that's always something to keep an eye out for where there are forests there might be big things living in the forest so we'll keep an eye out for that and that was chris mace from monash university and you also heard from gns science paleontologist liz kennedy and on our webpage you'll find some stunning images of the team in the field at rnz.co.nz slash our changing world Botox Cosmetic, out botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.